We're turning this evening to Hebrews chapter 2, please. Hebrews chapter 2. Uh, we'll read the opening 10 verses of this chapter together. So Hebrews chapter 2, and we'll commence our reading at verse 1, and then we'll look to the Lord even in a word of prayer once again for His help and His blessing. Hebrews chapter 2, with the Word of God open before us, let us hear the Word of our God. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the Word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders and with divers miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. But one in a certain place testified, saying, what is man that art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou hast made him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thine hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not made put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Amen. And we'll end there our reading at verse 10. And once again, we'll look to the Lord for His help now as we come to preach God's precious words. Let's unite our hearts together as God's people and pray for the blessing upon the Word of our God. Father in heaven, we do thank Thee, Lord, for the privilege again, a great privilege that is ours to hear the Word of God, to have this faithful translation in our mother tongue, Lord, we thank Thee that You have not left us to clamor or grope about in the darkness. But we thank Thee that Thy Word is a lamp unto our feet. It is a light unto our path. We bless Thee, O God, that Thy Word is truth. And we come to gather round the truth now. Not coming to hear some false, Lord, philosophy of man. But we're coming to hear what our God would have to say. And Thou has given the message. Thou has given help in the preparation Lord, offered, and now we look to Thee for help and the delivery. Lord, I come to Thee in my weakness, Thou who knowest all my weakness, Thou who knowest all my care. O oh God, I pray that Thou would come and enable me. Lord, help me, Lord, Thou knowest. And we thank Thee, Lord, we can give ourselves to Thee, and we can look and we can ask, O oh God, and receive by faith the infilling of the Holy Spirit. And we come, Lord, and we claim that blessed promise, and we pray that Thou would fill to the uttermost. Fill the sanctuary, O God. May the Holy Ghost be here working, moving, operating in the hearts of men and women and young people. O God, we pray that Thou would elevate this meeting from the natural and lift it into the supernatural. Draw us up heavenward. Take us from the things of this earth 
And we pray that thou will give unusual attention to the word of God as it's preached. Come, Lord, I pray, casting myself upon thee, I give myself into thine hand, and I pray that thou would use me for the glory and the honor of thy great name. Hear us, Lord. Do us good tonight. Speak to those who are not saved. Penetrate their hearts, O God. And we pray that this will even be the night of their salvation. That's what we're here, Lord. As we're here to see, thy kingdom extended. We're not here to play at church. We're not here, O God, to build a little empire for ourselves. We want to see Christ's kingdom extended. So may thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And may thy kingdom come. Lord, do us good and shut us in with thyself. And we pray that thou would banish the old wicked one who would seek to snatch away the good seed of the word. Hear us now. Accept of our thanks, for these are petitions we offer in Christ's name, and with an eye to his everlasting praise and glory. Amen. The Bible is full of many interesting and thought-provoking questions. They are questions that we should stop and think about and answer them honestly. The answers that we give to them are tremendous, of tremendous importance, not only in this life, but also with respect to eternity. The first question recorded in Scripture is found in Genesis 3, verse 1. Hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? It was asked by the devil to Eve, and as he did this, he sought to plant the seed of doubt in her mind, querying the command of God. And ever since, man has been questioning the authority of God's Word. The second question was asked by God himself to Adam, where art thou? Now we know that an omniscient God was not asking this question in order to gain or glean information. It was asked of Adam to give him an opportunity to stop, to evaluate, to consider the consequences of his actions and confess to God the wrong that he had done. And as we progress through the Bible, we come across other important questions Searching questions, deep questions, like if a man die, shall he live again? Or how should a man be just with God? In the New Testament, Pontius Pilate, he asked this question, What shall I then do with Jesus, which is called Christ? The Philippian jailer, he asked Paul and Silas, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now this evening, I want us to consider the question which is asked in Hebrews chapter 2 in the verse Three, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Here we have a rhetorical question in the sense that the answer, it is already known. The answer to this question, it's always the same. It is a question that is posed by the Holy Spirit in order to make sinners think, in order to make man think, to cause him to consider his ways. Now, over the past number of years, what we might call an entertainment activity has sprung up around a province. They are called escape rooms. Now, the basic premise is that a group of individuals, they're locked in a room, and they have a certain amount of time to escape. Now, in order to do that, they need to solve various riddles or puzzles, follow various clues, or complete certain tasks and challenges in order that they might find the key or the code to escape from that room. Now, I myself have been to two escape rooms. 
One was in Belfast in a dodgy-looking industrial estate. I must confess, as I drove into the car park, I wondered to myself, will I ever escape this car park? Never mind the escape room. And that night, well, we failed in our task, and we did not escape. That escape was purely for entertainment. There are times when the need to escape is more serious. It's advised that every home and family, they develop and practice an escape plan. In schools and businesses and public buildings, they often carry out and practice a a fire escape drill. The alarm goes off and the people, they have to make their way to a designated area. And there they are counted in order to make sure that all are safely gathered out of that burning building. The question of escape in this verse that we're going to think about tonight Well, it's definitely not about entertainment, and it's not so much to do with physical and temporal safety. Rather, it's speaking of eternal safety. In chapter 2, it begins with the word, therefore. Therefore. It's a connecting word. It takes us back into the previous chapter where the apostle has been expounding the excellency, the glory, and the superiority of Christ and the gospel of God's free and sovereign grace in Him. It's a word that calls us to gather our thoughts and focus our attention, and we can translate it like this. Since, since, since God has spoken to us by His holy prophets and through His Son, since the Lord Jesus is appointed the heir of all things, since the Lord Jesus is the brightness of God's glory and express image of His person, since the Lord Jesus has purged our sins and sat down in the right hand of God, since He is exalted far above all, and since He is greater than the angels, then we ought to give particular heed and careful attention to the question that's asked here in verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? I want to ask you tonight, sinner, how, how shall you escape? That's the title of the message this evening, How Shall You Escape? Now, the first thing I want to bring to your attention, we have here intimated a grave danger. In this question, there is intimated, implied a grave danger. When someone speaks of escape, there is usually a negative experience that you're escaping from. You escape from danger, you escape from peril, you escape from capture, you escape from a hazard, or you escape from some unpleasant situation or circumstance. The same word is used of the Apostle Paul, who escaped from Damascus when he was let down over the wall in a basket, when he escaped from his enemies. The Greek word escape here, it is a compound word. That means it's made up of two words. And really the meaning of this word means to flee out from or to flee away. Now what is the grave danger that sinners need to escape from? What's the grave danger that this verse is speaking of? Well, in the context, it's speaking of escaping from punishment. Punishment. Look at verse It tells us there, for if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward. We'll just stop there. And here the moral law of God is described as being given to Moses under the ministration of angels. Stephen, in his defense before the Jewish council, 
He speaks of those who have received the law by the disposition of angels in Acts chapter 7 and verse 54. And so that little phrase, the word spoken by angels, it's really a synonym for the law of God. God's righteous, God's fixed and inflexible law that clearly states prohibitions and requirements of man. There is no wriggle room in the law. There is no gray areas. There is nothing complicated about God's law. There is nothing questionable. It is good and it is holy. And in verse 2, we see that every transgression of God's law, every disobedience, is deserving of punishment. And what is the punishment? Well, God has said many times in the Scripture that those who failed to keep His law, they would die. Death is the punishment for sin. Death is what you need to escape from. And it's been said from this pulpit many times, it's death in all its forms. It's physical death, of course. And that's the sentence that every sinner is under and it's working in their bodies. There's spiritual death, which they, they now are experiencing in their estrangement from God. And there's also eternal death, the unending torment that lies before the unrepentant sinner. And that's what you need to escape from, the punishment of your sin. It is a danger that all born into this world will face by one man Sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. You know, many, they dismiss the Genesis account as a myth or a fairy tale or an allegory. But the creation of all things by an all-powerful, all-wise and eternal God, it's the only logical and scientific answer to how everything came into existence. Now is not the time to discuss origins. But everything postulated by man with his false theory is contrary to empirical science and the laws of reason and logic. In the beginning, God created. And as such, He is the right. He is the right to be the lawgiver. And He gave Adam and Eve one command. And He also told them the penalty. For breaking that command was death, and we are familiar with how that all went. Adam and Eve, they transgressed God's command, and that plunged the whole of mankind into a state of sin and misery, and a sentence of death was passed upon them. Man got exactly what he deserved. Verse 2 speaks of a just recompense. Death Eternal death is the appropriate punishment for sin. In, Acts, or sorry, in Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, it tells us that the wages of sin is death. The punishment a sinner receives is exactly what they deserve. It is what they have earned. It is the debt that they have accumulated by their sin. And it will be fair, sinner. The little boy Daniel was speaking to me one night about death, and I was telling him, well, well, death is a result of Adam and Eve's sin. But that's not what he wanted to know. He wanted to know why death? Why death? God could have chosen any punishment. He wished, but why death? And I thought, good question. That's a good question. Well, is there anything in the human experience more serious or solemn than death? 
You see the effect and the impact it has on a family. It's terrible. It's a dreadful. Death is an awful thing. And may we never get used to death. May our hearts never get hardened. Well, that's just the course of life. People die. Death is a terrible. Death is a dreadful. Death is an awful thing. And death is a punishment passed by God, I believe, to emphasize the severity of sin, the seriousness of the offense, that it is to rebel against God. The punishment is equal to the crime. And isn't that what the Mosaic law established? An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Death for sin. It is a just recompense. It is your payment. It is the wages that you will collect at the end of a life of sinning eternal, everlasting death. Death is also the consequence of separation from God since He is the giver and the sustainer of life. Now, if in the Old Testament economy, which was filled with all the types and the shadows of Christ, saw certain swift and unflinching judgment upon sin. That's what we're told in verse 2. Then you can be sure that the punishment for sin will be executed upon the unrepentant who live in this age when Christ has fulfilled the law and died for sin. While gospel, greater gospel privileges does not make punishment more certain, it will make it more severe, sinners. It will make it more severe. Turn over a few chapters to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, and we read in the verse 25, here's something that God urges upon you, sinner. It says there, See that you refuse not him that speaketh, for if they escape not that refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven. And you know that verse is telling you, sinner, do not turn away from him who addresses you in the gospel, the one who came from heaven. Do not be like those who refused God when he addressed them at Mount Sinai. It's true, yes, he doesn't speak to us now in thunderings and lightnings as he did then, but he speaks through the preaching of the word in the gospel as one who is exalted from heaven. And you are to see that you refuse not him that speaketh. If those in the Old Testament didn't escape, What makes you think that you will escape now in this age when Christ has fulfilled all those types and shadows? You're to flee from the wrath that is to come. You're to make your escape. This is the grave danger that you are in. When will the acts of God's judgment fall? Well, none of us know. Listen to how Christ warned sinners in His day. Matthew chapter 23 and verse 33. Listen what He says of sinners. Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? The same question as we're considering here in Hebrews 2 verse 3. They, just like you, they had rejected God's messengers God's message and God's mercy. And therefore he asks them in a rhetorical manner, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? Well, they can't. That's the answer. If they're going to reject God and if they're going to reject His ways, well, then they certainly cannot escape the punishment that is their just recompense. And neither will you. 
This verse, it implies there is a grave danger. But secondly, this verse, this evening, it speaks of a great deliverance. Even though sinners deserve just recompense of everlasting punishment because of their sin, the verse highlights for us that there's a great deliverance to be had in the words, so great salvation. The word salvation, it's a variety of different meanings. Two of those meanings are to be rescued or to be delivered. And the preaching of the gospel is good news. Yes, it contains a note of warning about a grave danger, but it also has the melodious notes of the comfort and the hope of the gospel of a great deliverance that can be had by the sinner. That's the preacher's privilege to sound forth the comfort to let you know that there is a great deliverance that can be had, that you can be rescued, you can be delivered from the just recompense of your sin. Now, why is salvation here described in this manner? Why is it so great salvation? Well, there are many reasons. But I want to give you three as we think about this great deliverance. Firstly, salvation is so great because of the one who planned it. It's so great because of the one who planned it. God is the originator. God is the author. Salvation is off the Lord. It is the one who has been offended by our sin. It's the one whose law that we have broken. It's the one who blessed man with every advantage and favor to lead a blessed life and yet had it all thrown back in his face by the willful rebellion and high treason of Adam. It is he who has planned salvation. Man at the beginning did not seek God. He didn't make any proposal to God about how he could deal with his guilt and sin. He ran and he hid from God. It was God who planned it all. Listen to the words of the Lord in Isaiah in the chapter 59 and verse 16. And he saw that there was no man and that there was wonder that there was no intercessor. Therefore his arm, his arm brought salvation unto him. God saw that there was no one who could stand for man as an intercessor, as a mediator, and plead and ask God for mercy, for forgiveness. And therefore, by his own arm, he brought salvation. He is the one who worked out the terms of the sinner's deliverance. He is the one who drafted the blueprint of redemption. The deliverance by the payment of a price. God is the one who sent His Son into this world to be the Redeemer of men. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 9, God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. God is the instigator. God is the originator. God is the author of salvation. Man had no part in that plan. It was a unilateral covenant which was conceived in the mind of God from all eternity. And herein lies the greatness of salvation. And by it, the love of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God, the justice of God, the righteousness of God is magnified. His attributes, yes, are seen in creation. But we have them in all their brilliant radiance set forth in the plan of of redemption. That's why William Newell wrote those words, Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. And oh, the mighty gulf that God 
did span. God did the spanning. God did the planning. God did the instigating there at Calvary. Salvation is so great because of the one who planned it. Salvation is so great because of the one who purchased it. It was the Son of God who came to purchase, to secure the great deliverance from sin. You can press the last three Sunday mornings that I preached under this sub-point, and there you might begin to understand the magnitude of what He did in order to pay the price of our deliverance. You should never think that salvation, salvation was not an easy thing. We read often in terms like this, if the righteous scarcely be saved. There were great, what we might call difficulties that had to be overcome, like squaring God's justice with His mercy, but God and Christ honored, upheld and put a glory in all those things through Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us there's one deliverer. There's one mediator. The man Christ Jesus, he came in the fullness of time to cancel the debt of our sin and he did it by paying the price which was due. Deliverance was by the payment of a great price. The blood of Jesus Christ. See, the death of Christ was the culminating act of his obedience. And in his life, he gave obedience to the law of God. His life was an undeniable demonstration that he was without sin. And so the blood which he shed was incorruptible blood, sinless blood, blood like no other, the blood of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And therefore, his blood offering was of infinite value. We read in Leviticus 17, 11, it is the blood that maketh atonement for the soul. We know from this book of Hebrews that the blood of an animal could never take away sin. It's only the blood of God's dear Son. God was pleased with the offering that Christ made. This is what makes salvation so great. The one who purchased it, the great price that he paid. The value of the sinner's soul is so precious that it took the precious blood of Christ to purchase Redemption, the greatness of salvation is seen when we consider the one who purchased it by a great price. Thirdly, salvation is so great because of the one who partakes of it. Who benefits from this great salvation, this great deliverance? Well, well, sinners like you and me, those who are only fit fuel for the fires of hell. What mercy and grace that salvation blessings would terminate would be poured out upon those who are undeserving and ill-deserving. Get that tonight, sinner. You deserve nothing from God. And yet the greatness of this salvation is seen that God is willing. He is able to bestow it unto you. The greatness is seen in the change that it makes of those who partake of this salvation because He saves sinners from the pollution of their sin Sins of deepest dye. Sins that are scarlet and red like crimson which have stained the soul can be washed, can be washed by God through Christ for His blood cleanses from all sin. The greatness of salvation is seen in that it saves sinners from the, the power of sin. God's salvation sets men and women free. 
from the bondage of their sin. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. There's nothing that can change the individual, the home, the society, for the better than the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation. You see, God's salvation, it succeeds where programs and incentives and initiatives all have failed. We're told clearly that if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. All old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. All the greatness of salvation is seen in those who partake of it because God saves from the pollution of sin and the power of sin, but He also saves those sinners from the penalty of their sin, for there is no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. They shall never perish. That's what makes it so great as well. This is not a part salvation. This is not just a time salvation. This is something for all eternity. Salvation also saves from the presence of sin. That's the end of salvation. He who we read in verse 10, is described as the captain of our salvation. He brings many sons to glory. No wonder it's described as a great salvation, especially for those who believe, for they have the right to enter heaven with the imputed righteousness of Christ upon them, where there'll be no sin, will there be no effects of the curse. Here is this great salvation. Now you might ask yourself, well, who can partake of this great salvation? Can I? Can I partake of it tonight? Yes, you can. You can. The Lord tells me to offer it as His ambassador freely to all. Not that it's mine to give, but His. There is no price for you to pay. There is no ritual for you to perform. There's no puzzle. There's no riddle for you to solve or complete. There's no instructions to follow, but to rest upon Jesus Christ alone. The whosoever will may come. And that includes you, sinner. But you see, it's only those who know their need that do come. It is the thirsty who come for water. It is the hungry who come for food. It is the filthy who come for cleansing. It is the poor who come for supply. It is the sick who come for healing. And I wonder tonight, do you have a sense of your grave danger that you are in? If you do, you need to come. You need to come now. Come to Christ. He bids you to come and make no delay. And know this great deliverance through His blood. There is a grave danger here. There is a great deliverance. But thirdly, in this verse, we're warned of a gross disregard. There is a gross disregard. Sinners are warned about disregarding this great salvation. In the words, if we neglect... And the Greek word it signifies to make light of or to disrespect, to disregard, to neglect God's free offer of salvation. It's to slight God. It is ungratefulness. It's to trample the precious blood of Christ under your feet. To neglect salvation is to despise the Christ of God, to reject Him. But listen, sinner, if you reject Him in time, He'll reject you for all eternity. To be careless in this matter of salvation, it's not only a front to God, but it's a personal calamity that you bring upon yourself. There's nothing that you possess that is more precious than your soul. And yet to be negligent in salvation, 
especially when you've heard the gospel as the highest form of self-abuse. It is to the eternal detriment of your soul if you neglect God's salvation. You know, a man can ruin his business not because of any fraud or underhand dealings, but simply by neglect. A woman can ruin her health if upon her bed of sickness she neglects to take her medicine. A child can grow up in ignorance if they neglect education. A garden becomes overgrown with weeds if the homeowner neglects the weeding. And so too many an individual is eternally lost because they neglect to tend to the matter of their soul. I fear there are those among us tonight and this speaks of you. You treat the matter of salvation as a light thing. The realities of heaven and hell you disregard. And that's shown by your demeanor. It's shown by your continual rejection of the call of God in the gospel. You know, there's different types of neglect. And I wonder which defines you. There's a neglect of indifference. You're unmoved. You're you're unconcerned. You're not, you're not caring. You're apathetic to the things of God. There's a neglect of preoccupation. You say to yourself, well, I'm too busy. I'm too busy to stop and tend to the matter of my soul. There's, there's so much go, going on in my life for me to deal with that tonight. Not tonight. There's a the neglect of procrastination. You keep putting off what you know to be right. And here's the astounding thing, sinner. Here is the astounding thing. You will tend to the matters off your body. If it's sick, you'll go to the doctor to get checked out. You will attend to the matters of your education, young person, for you go to school and you sit your exams. You attend to the matters of your business. You employ an accountant or a business advisor to, to give you some help. You attend to the matters of your state. For you go to a solicitor to sort out your will. You maybe even tend to the very matter of your death. And you've went to the undertaker to sort out all the funeral arrangements. But here is a gross disregard. You're doing nothing about your eternal destiny. You're not tending to the matter of your soul's salvation. How will you escape if you neglect so great salvation? The answer is you won't. And listen to this. The reality is you don't deserve to. You don't deserve to. If you keep neglecting God's salvation, the offer of Christ to come to Him for the forgiveness of your sins, if you neglect that, you won't escape. You can't escape. And sinner, you don't deserve to escape. You deserve everything that's coming to you. There is a gross disregard. And finally and briefly tonight, I want you to think about a gracious designation. A gracious designation. I mentioned in my introduction that when a fire escape drill is conducted, there is a designated place where people meet, an account is taken to make sure that all have escaped without harm. And while it's not in our text, there is a designated place 
There is a place appointed which the sinner can flee to and thus escape the judgment of God and the punishment for, from sin. I love the entreaty to Lot in Genesis nineteen seventeen. Escape for thy life. Look not behind thee. Neither stay thou in all the plain. Escape to the mountain, lest thou be consumed. There is a muster station, sinner. There is a place of refuge, Mount Calvary. I reverently say that the cross is God's fire exit from everlasting burnings. You must enter in at the cross by faith. And you must rest your soul upon what Christ has done if you are ever to escape. Make haste, sinner. The smell of the smoke of the torment that rises up forever and ever the smell is upon your clothes that you come so close to the very gates of hell. You approach ever nearer the bottomless pit and every breath you take it fans the flames of the fiery furnace as you reject the gospel and you spurn the offer of salvation. Have you come to the place appointed? Are you counted in with those who are safe and secure in Christ or will you be missing on that great day when you find yourself perishing in the lake of fire? It won't be that you didn't know to escape. You heard the warning alarm blasted by the silver trumpet of the gospel from the lips of the preacher, from the Sunday school teacher, from the children's meeting worker, from the relative, from the parent, from your spouse. And that alarm will ring in your ears for all eternity. Your ears will ring with the warning bells that you refused. How shall you escape? You won't. Let's get it clear. This question isn't asked for suggestions. How will I escape? Well, you know what I'll say to God? I went to church. It's not asked for that reason, for you to come up with suggestion, for you to come up with some sort of argument to God. It's asked in order that you might stop and think. Because the answer to this question, it's always the same. It's a rhetorical question. How shall you escape if you neglect so great salvation? The simple answer is you won't escape. It won't all turn out in the end. Good. You won't be the exception to the rule and find a little back door out of hell. You will not escape. As one man said, there's no fire access in hell. And therefore, you need to come now. You need to flee now. Because in a moment of time, with the drawing of a breath, you could be in God's great eternity. Too late. No escape, but flee to Mount Calvary. Free, flee to the gracious designated place where one bled and died and took the punishment for sin that you might be forgiven and counted free and delivered from the everlasting burnings. Come to Christ, sinner. Come now. Don't delay. The warning has been given. 
The fire alarm has been sounded. May God have mercy upon your soul and give you grace to flee from the wrath that is to come. Let's bow in prayer. And let's ask the Lord to speak to those who are amongst us who are not saved. And they won't escape unless they come to Christ. Once again, I make myself available. I'll go to the minister's room. And you make your way there. You have an inquiry. You want to escape. You want to come to Christ because you know there's a great need in your soul. It's only those that come. And I pray the Spirit will impress that upon you even as you sit underneath this prayer. Father in heaven, we come to thee, Father, and we thank thee. We thank thee that there is a way to escape, but it must be availed off in time. We pray for those that are here, and the warning bells have been sounded in their ears many a time. Lord, they, would, they wouldn't sit in a burning building and listen to a fire alarm. They would tend to their bodily need. They would get up. They would run. They would run with urgency. They would do all to get out of that building. And yet, Lord, they're so careless, so negligent with their soul. But I pray, Lord, they would not disregard it. They would not count salvation as a light thing. And what Christ has done, we pray, O Father, that Thou would give them those blessed gifts of faith and repentance that would draw them to the Savior. We pray as God's people for those who sit amongst us. Lord, we want them with us on Canaan's happy shore. We don't want to see them being bound hand and foot by the holy angels and cast into outer darkness. O God, have mercy upon them. Strive with them. Remember the young amongst us. Remember the children. We pray that they would even have that urgency upon their soul to flee from the wrath that is to come and flee to the open arms of the Lord Jesus who receives all who come to him by faith. Lord, we pray that thou would bless the word as it's gone forth. And it has been delivered in weakness, but we thank thee, Lord, that thou art pleased to take the weak things of the world confound the things that are mighty. We thank thee that in our weakness thy strength is made perfect. We pray that the power of the word, the operation and demonstration of the Spirit of God would be evident in this meeting, even at the end, drawing sinners unto Jesus Christ. Lord, bless thy people in the week that lies before them. We pray that thou will draw near to their hearts and fill them with the fullness of God. Supply their need through and in Christ Jesus. Now I pray, O God, that the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Spirit will be the portion of thy people this night and forevermore until the day break and the shadows flee away and we gather round the feet of our blessed Saviour. And see him face to face and sing that story saved 
thy grace. Part us with thy blessing. Take us to our homes in safety. Fill the inquiry room. Hear our prayer, for this we ask in the Saviour's precious and worthy name. Amen.